You're listening to Wide Margins. This is episode 15, A Promise That Should Have Been Broken. We're going to talk today about Jephthah. Jephthah is known as the judge that made the vow to God, and most people believe that it ended with the sacrifice of his daughter. I wanted to, I've been looking forward to approaching this subject because there's so much confusion over it, and I'm, I don't think that I have all the answers to it, but I'd like for us to think about a few things. And one perception of this story that I'd really like to tackle and if it's possible, which is not, do away with, is the use of this story as an example of how we should keep our promises to God and be faithful to God. I can't tell you how many times I've heard Jephthah promoted as an example of loyalty and faithfulness. Now, faithfulness to God is very important. I think everybody would assume I I believe that. I believe that you believe that, so I hope that you believe that of me. But when we're trying to give God something he doesn't want, there's a point at which we should cease and desist. When we realize we're trying to push something on him he doesn't want, something sinful, something deviant, we should back away from that as soon as we realize it's the wrong thing. In other words, when you make a mistake, you repent of the mistake. This isn't a story about faithfulness and fidelity. This is a story of depravity. As we've gone through the judges, the heroes have gotten less and less noble. And now we're really on the downspin. We're, we're on the backside of it. We're going downhill fast. As we've finished talking about Gideon and Abimelech, and these two lesser-known judges, Tola and Jair, we're now to Jephthah, a very troubled judge in the history of Israel. He was a legitimate judge. It's said of him in Judges chapter 11, verse 29, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. So unlike Abimelech, we can qualify him as an actual judge, but he, like Samson after him, will make some very grievous mistakes. In fact, it could be argued that these judges are not arranged chronologically, but topically, in terms of their, you know, from from good to worse, or something like that. Maybe that happened chronologically for reasons we've already explained, or maybe it's the point that the book's trying to make. It certainly seems that way. We are still in the sixth cycle that started in chapter 10, verse 6, We went ahead and covered the rest of chapter 10, so we'd have plenty of time to survey chapters 11 and 12 today, which basically tell Jephthah's story. But we've already set the stage that this little area called Gilead, it's not a tribe of Israel, but it was within the tribe of Gad, most people think, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, so bordering the land of Ammon. This this place was mentioned as a place in chapter 10. And now we come to a person from Gilead. We're introduced to Jephthah. Jephthah had a hard life coming up. He was the son of a prostitute. His father was somebody who was special and well-known, and he had many other sons by his wife. And these sons kicked Jephthah out. They mistreated him. They judged him for his upbringing 
for the way that he was born. And so he had to run away from his home. He was kicked out, and he went to a land called Tob, or Tob. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Somewhere north of Gilead, away from the general public. And while he was there, he came into contact, uh, contact, the text says, with worthless fellows. And it seems that they kind of formed a gang, maybe a little band of merry men. They probably were up to no good, probably raided places and, and led a pretty rough lifestyle. And Jephthah was a part of that, kind of forced into that life by his brothers who didn't want to have anything to do with him. So Ammon begins to become a problem for the Israelites, especially those living on the eastern side of the Jordan River. You have to remember there were two and a half tribes located over there. In the far north, you had Manasseh, or half of the tribe of Manasseh. It was on both sides of the Jordan River. Then you had Gad, which was closer to Jephthah's home. And then south was Reuben. And these tribes had problems with Ammon and some of the other uh, nations that were over on that side of the Jordan River. And Ammon was really causing problems. As a result of Israel's sin, God had backed away and allowed the Ammonites to threaten Israel. They cried out to God, as we talked about last week, and God brought them Jephthah. The elders of Gilead went to Jephthah first, and they requested his help. Why did they ask for his help? Probably because he was known as somebody pretty successful at winning battles. He had this band of merry men, or whoever they were, these worthless fellows, and uh, he and those guys could really do some damage. So they were wanted for their warlike qualities, and in return, the elders of Gilead said, if you'll fight for us and defeat the Ammonites, we'll make you head over the Gileadites. You can go from being the outcast prostitute's son to the leader of our people. Jephthah was a little skeptical, but eventually, after some back and forth, Jephthah took them up on their offer. And it says that he spoke before the Lord that he would become their head, and the agreement was made. Now, Jephthah begins sending messengers to Ammon, and messengers from Ammon come back to him, and they are negotiating and, and talking about the situation, trying diplomacy before war, much in the same way that we do in politics today. And it goes something like this. Jephthah asked the Ammonites, Why are you threatening us with war? And the Ammonites come back and say, Because during the days of Moses and Joshua, you took over our territory. To which Jephthah returned and gave them a history lesson that you can read if you've got the time to do it from Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites did not go to battle and defeat the Ammonites. They left the Ammonites alone. Their beef was with the Amorites. Sounds similar, but different people. Their beef was with the kings Og and Sihon, whom they defeated, but they left nations like Moab and Ammon alone. Not only that, but... They uh, tried to negotiate with Ammon way back when, and nobody would do anything for them. In addition to that, uh, this was ancient history. He said, for 300 years we've lived here without you going to war with us. Why is this an issue all of the sudden? 
Why are you becoming so territorial now? But none of this seemed to have any effect. Ammon still wanted to go to war with Jephthah and the Israelites, namely the Gileadites. And so they went to battle. Now, Jephthah must have been feeling a little insecure by this point. Maybe he thought the diplomacy would take care of it. When it didn't work, he realized, we're going to war, and we're going up against a much larger army than, than we are. And so I need a little extra help. So he decides what he's going to do is make a vow to God. And this is in Judges chapter 11, verses 30 and 31. Here's the vow as I read from that. If you, he's speaking to God, if you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So he crosses over to the Ammonites, and he fights them, and lo and behold, the Lord delivers them into his hand. He defeats 20 cities. It was a total and complete victory, and Jephthah returns home. Now, I don't know what's going through his mind on the way home. I don't know if he's sweating bullets, thinking, oh, I hope the dog comes out, or the cat, <laughs> or I don't know if there was a person he had in mind, but the last person on earth he wanted to come out was who actually came out first to meet him, his only daughter. She comes out. And Jephthah confesses to her what he has done and says, I have to go through with this. And she agrees to fulfill the vow that he had made under one condition. Now, you probably already know the condition, but I'm going to ask you, just think for a minute, if you were to make a condition or you were going to come back to your father after he gives you all this information, what would you say? Here's what she said. She said, First, let me go out to the mountains and mourn my virginity for, what did she say, two months, and then you can do with me as you please. And so she does. She gets her friends together. They go out into the mountains, weep her virginity, and then... It says that she returned in verse 39. Her father did with her according to his vow that he had made. So the question on everybody's mind is, what did Jephthah do? And if you just read it on the surface, it appears that he offered his daughter up as a human sacrifice. In the general area of the Canaanites and the Moabites and the Ammonites and all these ites, that was not something that was all that unusual. In fact, in verse 29, the god of Moab is mentioned. Chemosh. I got that wrong. The god... Where I wrote this down. This is what I do. I write things down. It's such a mess. I cannot find it. Verse 24, and it's the god of Ammon, not Moab. Chemosh. And he was worshipped by other Canaanite areas as well. Chemosh was a fire god. Another one like him was Molech. These are, of course, false gods. But people would offer their children up in fire to these gods. And later, Judah, kings of Judah, like, um, ironically, one named Ammon, and his grandson Manasseh, 
made their sons pass through the fire to these gods. So this was going on to Chemosh, to Molech, to Canaanite gods, but this was never something the God of Israel asked for. In fact, it was regarded by the law of Moses as an abomination to the Lord. It was strongly prohibited. So you've got to wonder, what was going through Jephthah's mind when he made this vow? And did he really go through with it? Was he really able and willing? Would he rather commit the sin of human sacrifice than the sin of breaking a promise he had made to the Lord? A promise, mind you, that wasn't one that should have been made in the first place. This was a promise that should have been broken. Now, there are some considerations. Let's look at this. Scholars have, and, I, and I'm in this camp, not saying I'm a scholar, but I'm one that has tried to find any and every concession the text will give me to go with an interpretation that allows this poor daughter to live. And here are some considerations as we look very carefully at the text. One thing is, Jephthah could have been using the contraction or in this to make a distinction between an animal or a pet that might come out to greet him versus a human being. If I, if I read it that way, here's how the vow would read back at Judges 11, 30, and 31. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, or I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, my translation has the word and. It is possible to translate it or. So in the first case... If it's a human being, it's going he or she will be the Lord's, will belong from that point forward to the Lord. Or, if it's a pet or an animal, I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So there's that possibility. It's not the way it's translated in any major translation, but it is a possibility, a remote possibility, admittedly. Another consideration is that he was thinking it would be a pet or an animal. And that's because the pronouns that are used here are in the neuter. They're not um, masculine or feminine. So you'll notice this in the ESV from which I'm reading. Whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me shall be the Lord, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That's the literal reading there, which tells you maybe what was on Jephthah's mind. But it doesn't really answer the question, what did he do? A possibility is that he gave his daughter over to tabernacle service and she had to lead a celibate lifestyle for the rest of her life. And you might say, well, he specifies burnt offering. Well, we could go back to that contraction, that possibility. You could go back to if Jephthah's negotiating with God with this vow, he might negotiate a little bit further and back off the sentence that he himself had given. But the reaction of the daughter is very compelling here on this interpretation. Because if I were in her shoes and my dad said, I have just made a promise to God and I'm going to have to burn you alive to the God that says no human sacrifices. 
my response would be to run away, to fight my father, to cry, (laughs) to plead for my life. But the last thing that I would do would be to get a group of friends together and have a weeping party in the mountains for two months because I'm going to die a virgin. That's exactly what she does. And I realized that the culture in those days centered around a woman's ability to bear offspring and produce uh, children that would carry on the family name from there on. And she never got that opportunity. And that was a very serious thing, maybe more serious than our society today. But life and death was still more serious than virginity or childbearing or any of that stuff. And if you were given over to tabernacle sacrifice, Uh, service as Samuel was then that meant a life of celibacy in most cases well I say that but Samuel had children so there goes that good job Drew you shouldn't even mention that example but um, with her more than likely it meant that so I like to think I'm doing a terrible job here trying to make this case but I would like to think that what happened here was that Jephthah realized he made a mistake and gave her over to tabernacle service, which is why she mourned her virginity for two months with her friends and didn't kill his daughter as a human sacrifice. But I can't prove it. I can't say it for certain. And if you just read the text as it is, it's a bit ambiguous, but it leans in the direction of human sacrifice. We don't know really what happened. But there are some lessons we can learn from this. First of all, things aren't always as bad as they seem, are they? Things just aren't always as bad as they seem. Jephthah thought, there's no way I can defeat the Ammonites. He refused to look back at the example of Gideon. Maybe the Gideon example never got to him. Maybe it didn't happen before this again. This may not be in chronological order. I don't know why, but Jephthah just thought he was uh, going to lose. And if he lost, it didn't matter what vow he made to God, he'd never get a chance to fulfill it. That had to have been his mindset as he made this vow to God. But things aren't always as bad as they seem. The Lord tells us not to worry. Paul tells us, don't be anxious. Through prayer and supplication, we should give thanks, make our supplications to the Lord, make our requests to the Lord, let your requests be made known to the Lord, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will keep or guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. We're told not to worry, but we worry so much. Things things are usually not as bad as we make them out to be. And another thing, don't be rash. Be careful what you say. Words, more than anything else, have a way of coming back to bite us. We have to be so careful with our words, especially when we're making promises. He could have been through this experience, and it would have been so much better if he'd just said nothing. Which leads me to another point. Don't negotiate with God. Jephthah and the Israelites did not win this battle against Ammon, because Jephthah made this negotiation and God wanted his daughter. Either wanted her for tabernacle service 
or human sacrifice. He certainly didn't want a human sacrifice. Israel didn't win the battle because of that. Israel won the battle because it was God's will for them to win the battle. And if Israel had anything to do with it, you can go back to the last episode and see that they were penitent and God saw their cries and he saw their changed actions. He saw that they put away their idols and that changed things. Not Jephthah's negotiation. Your negotiations with God don't matter. There's not anything that you can do to manipulate God into doing your will. His will will always be done. Don't negotiate with God. Finally, don't blame others for your stupid mistakes. Of all things, after this daughter comes out to greet him, happy to see her father comes home, he tears his clothes and Judges 11.35 has him to say, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I've opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. He blamed her for his trouble. And we do that all the time, too. We may not make as big a mistake as Jephthah make, but our first reaction always seems to be blame the other person, even if it means blaming somebody who we are hurting with our sin. We do it all the time. Don't blame. Just repent, confess, be humble, and it'll be a much better way to to move forward than to cast blame. Pride is the root of so much sin, and I think there was a lot of pride here. Speaking of that, there's a little footnote here on Jephthah's, uh, should I say, rule or term as a judge. It involves Ephraim again. Do you remember when we were talking about Gideon in Judges chapter 8? Ephraim complains that Gideon didn't get them involved in the main war against the Midianites. He did call them down to help, but it was, they didn't get the, the biggest victory. And so Ephraim was just hot under the collar over this. And they come down to Jephthah, angry about the same thing. Evidently, Jephthah did not rally troops from Ephraim. He says, I think, later that he tried to, but they didn't want to get involved. And so he relied on other tribes and other people, mainly the people of Gilead of which he was a part. Ephraim was a really proud tribe. Uh, it was a tribe of Joshua, and I think because of Joshua, there was a lot of pride there, as, as you would understand. Uh, it was a tribe of Deborah and probably Barak. They were great, memorable judges as well. And also during the war against Canaan that was led by Deborah and Barak, Gilead is mentioned in Judges 5 as one of the uh, groups of people who didn't come to the aid of the Israelites. That's a little twist in there. I'm not sure it has anything to do with this, but it's interesting anyway. Ephraim was very proud. It was a big tribe. It was a descend- They were descendants of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob. There were all these things that made them think they were special. This leads to the first civil war, not the last, in the book of Judges, war within the Israelites. They were a greater threat to themselves, as it turns out, than the nations around them, and Ephraim does not win. They come out bad. In fact, for a long time, Jephthah's men, the men of Gilead, capture the fords of the Jordan 
that were used by Ephraim to cross the Jordan and go back and forth. And there's a strange little story about how they would capture the fords, and how do you know one tribe from another? They all looked alike. They didn't have special garments or ID badges or uh, passports or anything like that. But they evidently had different dialects. And this reminds me of the people who recognize that Peter was among the Galileans because of the way that he spoke. Evidently, from tribe to tribe, there were certain dialects. And Ephraim seemed to have a problem saying um, the the vowels S-A, or the, the letters S and H together. Because if somebody came through and came by one of those fords guarded by Jephthah's men, and they wanted to pass, the men would ask them to say the word shibboleth. I don't know what that word means, but it was a word evidently Ephraimites couldn't say because they would say sibboleth, not shibboleth. Evidently they had a lisp or something, and they would get killed for not being able to say shibboleth. So my advice to you, you may need this one day crossing a river. Practice the word shibboleth every morning till you can say it perfectly. You never know when you're going to need to say it. It was a password. And so 42,000 Ephraimites died in this civil war and through this control of the fords. And that was the end of Jephthah. Jephthah judged Israel only six years, and he died and he was buried. And there followed after him three rather obscure judges, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Ibzan judged for seven years, Elon for ten years, Abdon for eight years, and there's very little information about each one. They're very insignificant. That gives us judges numbers eight, Jephthah's number eight, Ibzan by my count is nine, Elon ten, Abdon eleven, I'm going to make Samson number 12 to round it out as 12. I know some people count Abimelech. After what we learned about Abimelech, I'm just not going to give him that honor. And then some people count Samuel and even go into Samuel's sons. 12 seems to be a special number. For memory's sake, we're going to go with 12. And so we've gotten through 11 of these. There's one to go, but there's so much to talk about him. And after that... There are so many other stories to tell. I hope that you'll stick with us. We're going to continue this. We're going to start on Samson next time on Wide Margins.